everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by my friends over at a company called Real Mushrooms, realmushrooms.com. Um, Sky Chilton and his father, Jeff Chilton. I interviewed Jeff a number of episodes ago. Uh, really interesting guys. I, I really enjoyed that conversation with Jeff. Um, and it's a company that sells and distributes medicinal mushrooms in powder or capsule form. Um, I was really happy to have these guys come on. Uh, I think they're very much in alignment with the, the values of the podcast. Uh, as you all know, a big part of this podcast is uh, about uh, plant medicine holistic medicine and I, I think the benefits of medicinal mushrooms are, are truly fantastic and I think there's really a growing body of work uh, that, that's really showing and alluding to all of the amazing properties that mushrooms have um, they sell a lot of different mushrooms um, things you've probably heard of like reishi, chaga, lion's mane, turkey tail, cordyceps. Um, those are all mushrooms I work with. They, they're, they're part of uh, what I consider uh, for myself a, a really holistic uh, supplement regime. Um, and the, the thing I really love about their company, not only are they really good guys, I think they're really ethical guys, um, but um, the, the product is really amazing. It's all 100% uh, mushrooms. They're organic. Uh, and, and that's really rare. For better or for worse, the supplement in this industry is, is highly unregulated. Um, and so often when you get supplements, you don't necessarily know what you're getting. You may be getting some mushroom. You may be getting a bunch of fillers and other things. Oftentimes, even when you're buying what may be a mushroom. It may not have any of that mushroom in it at all, unfortunately. Uh, even some of the big, uh, I think even the biggest company that, that sells mushrooms, actually it's not the fruiting body, not the mushroom itself. It's the mycelial, which is grown on grain, and then those things are mixed up and then sold in a supplement form. So not only are you not getting the mushroom itself, you're getting the mycelium uh, mixed with grain. So um, it's one of the amazing things of real mushrooms is it's exactly that. It's real mushrooms. So it's 100% mushrooms, organic. So you know you're getting a really good uh, product. You're getting the actual fruiting body, the, the mushroom itself, 100% of that. Um, and again, just really great guys. I'm, I'm really happy to have them on and supporting this podcast. Uh, so if you'd like a really good product, uh, you'd like to start working with medicinal mushrooms, um, check out their site, realmushrooms.com. Um, and also listeners of the show. Uh, if you go to their site, realmushrooms.com forward slash universe, you get 25% off your first order, uh, which is a really good deal. And I think once you uh, uh, start working and, and tasting their products, you'll you'll really uh, see and feel a big difference. So uh, thank you to them. And uh, I think that's it. And without further ado, here is the intro to the show. On this episode of the podcast, I sat down with Christina Allen. Christina was recommended to me by another guest who I had on probably about a year ago, Joan Wilcox, who is uh, very immersed in the Kerdo Andean tradition. Um, and she very highly recommended Christina, so I was really happy to have Christina on. Uh, we had a really beautiful conversation. I, I think we went about two and a half hours. Uh, we got into her history. Uh, she has a really interesting story. She grew up in Alaska and was quite connected to the nature there and the mountains, which uh, turns out very much influenced her work, as she also became very familiar uh, and engrossed in this same Kerdo lineage of the Peruvian Andes. Um, 
her time with the Grateful Dead and, and beginning to work with psychedelics, uh, uh, kind of her uh, shamanic calling, I guess you could say, and, and how she was very influenced by uh, certain trauma that she had in her life and how that influenced her work. It's also a big part of the work she does now. Um, and just kind of the shamanic calling in general. So it was a really interesting conversation. Um, I think she expresses herself really beautifully and she has a really interesting story and, and seems to be doing really good work. Uh, so it was really a, a pleasure to sit down and speak with her. So I hope and trust you all uh, really enjoy this conversation with her. As always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really good option. It's a subscription service. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Um, if you feel like you're gaining something from this podcast, that's a, a, a really excellent way to, to give back and to help to support me uh, to bring on these really beautiful guests like Christina. Uh, to all the patrons, to all the people who have done that, as always, thank you very much for your support. Uh, there's also the option to direct donate via PayPal. I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. If you're not able to do that, as always, just helping with the algorithms is a really big help too to get this show out to a bigger audience. So if you're viewing this on YouTube or Rumble, um, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving any questions or comments in the comments section, all of those things really help to drive the algorithms. Uh, and if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leaving a starred rating and a short review is also a really big help. So I think that's it. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Christina. Well, great, Christina. Well, well, thank you very much for coming on. Um, we were chatting a little before we started, and you were actually recommended to me by, I, I assume, a, a good friend of yours, a, a teacher of yours, and someone who I interviewed, who I, I, I really enjoyed that interview, and her, um, that's, that's Joan Wilcox. And uh, she, she wrote to me, and you're actually the only person she's ever reached out to me and recommended, so I, I felt like I should... Uh, take her advice. And I, I watched a couple of videos of yours and, um, and, and I was really happy to have you on. So uh, first of all, thank you for coming on. Thank you for taking the time. And maybe just to start, if you could say a little bit about yourself to, to you know, some of the audience may have heard of you, but I'd imagine there's, there's at least a number of people who, who haven't. So uh, maybe you can just give the audience a little bit of background about yourself, your, your history, your story, and, and what brought you to do the work that you're doing. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, um, Joan said beautiful things about you, too, so I feel honored to be here. Um, my story is um, a story that's sort of a parallel story, and eventually those two lines come together. I had early childhood trauma, never diagnosed, um, which sort of set me up for an uphill battle with my nervous system, um, and then with parents who didn't have any any room for, you know, the dysregulation and that kind of stuff. So 
a lot of struggle just in terms of my personal life in trying to figure out what was wrong and how to remedy it. Um, and then it might be that that's what drove my second, the second line, or it might be a, you know, just a destiny thing, but always, always, always wanting to, um, be a healer, be, um, a shaman, um, that kind of thing. And I think some of the early influence in that was I was raised in Alaska. We moved up there when I was four years old and, um, you're just surrounded by these um, majestic mountains. I was, I was living in Anchorage. Um, there were native Americans all over the place. Um, and you know, in our assembly school, people have school assemblies and in our assemblies, Native Americans were doing the raven dance and, you know, they were stomping and playing their sealskin drums and they had these long sealskin um, mitts that they had with little shells on them and they would shake the shells and they would wear raven masks and I was just entranced with that whole thing. They would do these things called blanket tosses, which are essentially a trampoline, but it's everybody holding a big, huge skin that somebody jumps on, on and off. And um, the whole thing was magical to me. So the combination of just w having that innate sense of saving all the little animals that my cat was mutilating, um, trying to, to um, just heal things, probably because of my own need to heal. And then this Native American thing in Alaska, I think it just set you know early, early seeds for me. Um, my parents split up when I was a teenager. My mom moved to California, very close to San Francisco. And it was in the 70s, and there was all the psychedelia of, of the, you know, San Francisco. And I dove right in. Um, I was a Grateful Dead fanatic. Um, I did all kinds of psychedelics as a teenager. And I read all the Carlos Castaneda books back then. Um, I think there were only four back then. Um, and just it just kept growing in me. Like, there's this is what I want to do. I want to be a shaman or I want to be a healer. I want to be in that, that space between the worlds helping people hold, you know, healing. And what I understand now, many, many, many years later, is that space between the world is a place that is... Um, very comfortable for someone who's had trauma because they go into dissociation, especially if you've suffered freeze. And um, freeze is one of the, the three sort of major stress responses that we have as an, in a nervous system. We have fight, we have flight. But if we do not have the capacity to run or to fight because we're in a power differential of some sort, either we depend on that person for economic survival, for love, or they're considerably bigger than us, or all of those, our body goes into a different mode. Instead of getting all jacked up, this, the um, parasympathetic nervous system taps in and shuts us down into a form of paralysis. And in paralysis... You survive, and freeze, you survive, but part of you dissociates. Your, your, your experience of yourself goes outside your feelings, outside your body presence, and you will develop that sense of consciousness of living between the worlds in a way. So I think on some level it's an initiation for people who, who are 
in the in the healing traditions. Um, a lot of them have gone through some kind of trauma that they've had to live in that space. I didn't even understand that that was what that space was for the longest time. But when I started doing psychedelics, I would go, oh, this is where I feel most comfortable. This is my, you know, this is my, my sort of my default, my most, um, um, most actualized self is in this. I would obviously hit all the all the things you have to hit in in, the, in a psychedelic session, but I would also feel this kind of really deep centering on who I was, which is actually really an important part of the Andean tradition, which I'll get back to later. But just to finish the story, I um, I spent my my adolescence. Um, doing a lot of psychedelics, doing a lot of um, Grateful Dead shows, which is interesting because on some level now in retrospect, I get that they're like an ayahuasca ceremony. Everybody there was on LSD or mushrooms, and there was music playing, and the whole group would turn into this group consciousness and go through a thing together, which was just fascinating to me. But I go to college. Um, there's no, there's no major of, of shaman or healer or anything like that. And I was, you know, I was primed from my childhood and from my background to go to the university. Um, and so I, I just kind of futzed around for a while. And finally, I decided, well, the, the easiest thing to do, easiest, I'm saying, you know, with a laugh, um, to kind of understand reality and the nature of reality, which is what I wanted to get to the bottom of, because I had this sense from psychedelics that everything is energetic and conscious at a fundamental level. How do I understand that? How do I study that? How do I work with that? In the Western world, the only answer really was to study physics. So I buckled down and got my degree in physics um, and got my degree and had and you know I studied non-locality um, which was an was which was this this um, concept that there is action at a distance that something happening you know a molecule or a, a you know an atom spinning over here can affect an atom spinning over here without there being any kind of conscious you know physical connection between them which told me hmm there's a consciousness in place that's informing those two um, those two um, atoms or, or you know particles. This comes from John Clauser's um, experiments on non-locality. Um, we can we could talk about that if you want to. But generally, what I realized was there was an implicit consciousness already in place because in physics nothing can happen faster than the speed of light. And those two molecules were I mean those two atoms were affecting each other, ions really, were affecting each other at a at a, a you know with faster than the speed of light could con could connect them through communication. So it implies that there's this implicit kind of alive consciousness. So I studied that and um and it was like, that's what I needed out of physics. When I had to go and get a job in the world, I'm like, oh, no, this isn't, this isn't literally what I do. I'm not an oscilloscope, you know, computer, you know, kind of person. Um, and I'm, I wasn't brilliant enough to be, a, you know, a theorist. They're, those guys are, speak math fluently. I, I used math as a tool, but it's a whole different animal to see a, a theoretical physicist at, ta at task. 
So I kind of bumbled for a little while, worked, you know, in some labs, and then um, went back to graduate school and studied, con- you know, I wanted to study consciousness because I was like, that's what's in the middle. That's what's between any two things. That's what the fabric of, of, of reality is. That's what's in that energy and that matrix of energy that, that all things are. Um, and I was immediately reduced down to the materialism of science and told, no, 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 we don't, we're not interested in consciousness here, but if you want to talk about neurons, we can talk about neurons. And so I studied synaptic transmission um, in, the, in the rat brain, the hippocampus, you know, learning and memory. I did this really high-end research at the time where we would cut little brain slices, rat brain slices, stimulate them you know, in the hippocampus, and then, you know, see how reliable they were. The, the implication was the reliability gave you some indication of a memory being, you know, kind of locked in. Um, there's a whole lot to that. Um, but I did that for, you know, I was in graduate school for about five years working on my PhD, and then, you know, how the world is. My mother died, and... Um, and I went into some place to follow her out. And um, I realized, oh, consciousness isn't in these little neurons. Because she's still talking to me, and she's paralyzed. She's in a coma. She is dying. She is dead. And we're still in conversation. And so as her body went offline and she still stayed online, I was like, okay, this is not Kansas anymore. There's something way more to consciousness than I'm ever going to find in the brain. So I started looking into spiritual traditions, how to find um, how to find a way to talk about it. I'd been calling in a shamanic teacher since I was, you know, a teenager. And um, as a white kid from the suburbs, white chick from the suburbs, um, I wasn't finding any way to do that in the 70s. Um, and so I studied yoga. I got really in- involved in yoga, went to India, studied with you know, a teacher there. I started getting into the philosophies of other traditions that would talk about consciousness and talk about self-development. Um, and then finally, 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 finally in my 40s by a weird, a weird kind of... Um, synchronicity or circumstance, something I didn't design, I ended up at a talk that was um, given by Alberto Vialdo, and he was talking about quantum mechanics and shamanism. And I went, oh, oh, yes, this fits. This is a teacher. This is um, a languaging I understand. And his the his main focus of, um, of tradition was the Andean tradition um, from the mountains of Peru. He mixed a lot of other things in with um, his his perspective, but the Andean tradition was sort of the focal point of his his teachings. So um, I studied with him. I went through his program, and then I started to finally heal from my trauma and repressed memories popped, and I started to realize, oh, this is why I was kind, of, you know, I was messed up. Um, so a whole lot kind of shifted when I stepped into that domain. Um, I learned how to heal. He taught um, a way of mixing the Andean tradition with um, with Western concepts like psychology and techniques like breathwork and tracking into the unconscious. And 
I did that work for a while, and I was with him for about 10 years. I went to Peru. I did a lot of work with the, um, the, the Pacos there. I didn't spend time talking to them because it was um, not really set up like that, but I did a lot of despachos with them, a lot of sitting with them, a lot of holding space with them. I traveled one-on-one um, -on -one with, and took a group with one of them to Choca Corral um, twice, two different times. So there was a lot of time with them, but there was a language barrier. Um, so there was there was not this kind of deep, let's sit and talk about the philosophy, but they're not big talkers anyway. They're not really philosophical in that sense. They're very practical. Um, so I finally left Alberto and started my own work in Texas. I started my own school. And it was a few years in that I had this contact. I took a class, an online class with Joan. Um, and she was teaching the traditional tradition, and it was like, oh, I see all the things that were missing from my original training. There was no training in the actual medicine work, and there were also some other shamanic things that were brought in that sort of downgraded the, um, the brilliance and the elegance of the Andean tradition. So... Um, um, the the main thing I would say that that it that Alberto's version introduced, even though he he addressed not being a victim, he also taught some of the victim perspective that comes from shamanic traditions of being possessed, of being um, taken over by entities, of having attachments, of having curses, all these kinds of things. And as I got deeper into the traditional Andean work. I realized, I learned that that wasn't really the high-level Paco's perspective. Um, Joan talks about the three levels, I mean, the, the, the multiple levels of, of levels of conscious awareness. And um, at the fourth level, which is, which is the level of the, you know, the bridge level of the Paco, the level where somebody is able to move out of the conditioning of their mind and their teachings and their family and into that that relationship with the the mystical and um, that bridging multiple traditions and being able to hold multiple truths at one time. From that perspective, there is no victimhood. From that perspective, perspective you can take agency and you are you know the 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 cultivator of your own garden you can raise your energy levels to some high vibration where nothing can affect you nothing can enter your energy field nothing can penetrate your psychology all that kinds of stuff without your invitation so it started a whole nother level of of the way i held my clients of the way i worked I learned how to tune energy. Um, one of the fascinating things about the Andean tradition is they tune with love. They tune the energy of creation, which is called Sami, to a higher frequency, which is called Munai. Munai is love. So you heal with love. It's just amazing. And then you can tune Munai to an even higher frequency called Hampe Munai, which is love with sort of like a, a you know a little thunderbolt through it. Um, um, it is, it's, it's, the way I see it is it helps re deconstruct and reconstruct 
energetic reality so that you can actually shift and move things at the energetic level and re redesign them. So this where I am now, I'm doing a lot of healing work. I help a lot of people um, heal from trauma. Um, what I notice in trauma is they get frozen and frozen is a thing that happens at a lot of levels. One, your body holds on to the story. You know, you, you endured that, that event. And so your body sort of gets locked in that, that lattice of information. If we were a gazelle running from a lion, when the lion was gone, we would shake that all out. But we don't do that as humans. We just hold that. We just hold it in our bodies. When we are little kids, we go to our mom, usually, or our dad, but more often our mom, and we say something happened and we're crying, and mommy holds us. And we entrain to her healthy nervous system. And that's how we get that release, and that's how we readjust our energy system so it's not all chaotic and frazzled, but it's also healing with love. It's also intuitively knowing that moon eye is what helps heal people from trauma. So that is the, um, the work that I'm doing with people is helping them break down these, these things. So at the physical level, you get locked into a physical kind of lattice. At the mental emotional level, you get locked into personality structures that are dysfunctional and you don't express the emotions that happened from that event. And then at the energetic level, you end up having um, an energy field that's discordant. It's got all kinds of frazzle in it, um, representative in a sense from the different personality structures we develop to get through, um, through trauma or through our traumatic event. So, um, so the Andean medicine is beautiful. It's absolutely stunning in that it takes us to this place of we can reshape you, reformat you through this high level of love and help you melt that freeze. The body will start to tremble and shake out the trauma. Um, and then there's some other, you know, other parts that are interesting too, like soul retrieval. Um, so all of that has been, you know, what I've been doing. Um, so for the last 40 years, last 20 years, really, I guess, well, for my whole lifetime. Um, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. There's a lot there we could go into. Um, you kind of mentioned in the beginning that, uh, in your childhood, you experience, and it's a word that, that I think has become quite popular in, in more of our modern culture, but this idea of trauma um, and even kind of how, how you are explaining trauma, that it's, it's something that's kind of then imprinted in our, in our energetic field. Um, do you find that that's something that's, that's quite common with people who are somehow drawn to this work? Because you often hear in, in a lot of shamanic cultures that there's this idea of, of they wouldn't use the word trauma, but there's often some kind of cathartic experience or cathartic release or, or, or a big life change or a near-death experience, something that, that awakens people. Also, you said something that's really interesting, which I found to be true, which is uh, this idea that when someone does experience a lot of trauma, and especially in, in childhood, 
that they, they do tend to, to disassociate, to go out of their body. And, and so it makes it in a way much easier to kind of be in that liminal or, or kind of almost like hypnagogic space, this space between the two worlds. And it's also a really interesting, I think, definition of shamanism that you used, which is like this ability to traverse both worlds, which I, I think is a, a really beautiful way of, of speaking of shamanism. But um, maybe this is a long-winded question, but can you speak a bit more maybe from your experience about uh, kind of that idea of, of maybe that connection between this difficulty in childhood or, or kind of this cathartic experience that, that also seems to maybe awaken people to a shamanic world. Um, you, you also mentioned something really interesting, which I found quite fascinating for myself, which was also this idea that, that I also, I, I grew up in the U.S., but I, I was very interested in, in Native American cultures, and, and that very much, I think, sparked that urge as well. Um, but I also remember I, I, I took a trip to Mongolia in my early 20s, and I think it was the first time where I, I was just in this pureness of nature, and, and Mongolia is very pure in that way. I mean, there's no roads, there's no telephone poles, there's no, you know, there, there's these huge swaths of land with, with no towns, no people, no nothing. And, and I remember being in the mountains at one point, and, and I think it was maybe the first time in my life where uh, I, I literally felt this sense of awe, this, this reverence of nature, and this, this humility, this, this feeling of smallness. And I was really able to see how these people who were really not connected to nature in some new agey sense, but just really in nature, how that reverence and, and the, the respect and the, the awe, the, the, the power of nature could really infuse into someone's vision, their, their cosmovision, how it could shape their world. And it also seems like something that we're very cut off from in, in our modern societies. Like you know, most of us don't even see the stars anymore. It's, you know, and that really affects our, our worldview. But again, this is kind of a, a long-winded question, but, but I guess speaking something about that, that idea of you know, because that's how you, you began your story, which was that, that as a child you experienced trauma, but that that also somehow shaped you to also kind of find the shamanic path. Yeah, that, that makes me think of a lot of things when you, when you, when you say that. In terms of trauma, um, you know, here's an interesting story. I didn't know that I dissociated and that I had trauma until relatively recently um, when I, um, I fell into a fire and I um, landed with my hand on the burning embers and um, I got out and I was actually holding a despacho ceremony and we were gonna put the fire this despacho in the fire and I tripped and fell into the um, into the fire pit and immediately got out apparently I was engulfed in flames and then it receded and came back and I just stepped out of the fire and just my I just went I was just was initiated I don't, it, it just came through me spontaneously. And what it did was it made me dissociate. It made me separate from my body. And I kept going in and out 
um, over a few months of being in my body and out of my body and in my body. And I, I was like, this is really hard, but it's also familiar and I don't know what's going on and I'm having, tr I'm really struggling right now. And a friend of mine, um, I, um, who is a, a psychotherapist and who works with, with trauma and with the unconscious aspects of trauma said, come see me. And so I went to go see her and um, I was, she showed me this, this, this whole, um, you know, these stripes of color. And she said, look at the green color at the top. And then she said, look at the red color at the bottom. And when I looked at the red color at the bottom, I went into complete panic just looking at a red stripe. And um, I was, I just went into complete panic. And she goes, look at the green one. And I looked at the green one and I go, and I came back in, and I was okay, and everything's fine. I go, what happened? And she goes, you were traversing two realities. And I said, what? And I go, and she goes, in psychology, we would say it's um, it's dissociation. She goes, but in the spiritual traditions, you know, you are you are going into another realm of of reality and and leaving this one. And I went oh, this makes so much sense. I've been doing this all along. So it wasn't until, you know, relatively recently, about five years ago, that I even recognized that it was dissociation. I just had trouble. It was more of a peril for me than it was anything because anytime there was a stress, I would shut down. You know, so, so taking an exam or having an authority challenge me, these kinds of things, I would... I would just shut down or go into fight, you know, and not be able to be a normal person and just have the discussion of, you know, what's what's going on. So it was more of a struggle that I've, I I had to deal with, but I also was, it was very easy for me when I started to learn the shamanic traditions to go into it. It was like a fish in water. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I know this. I know this space. I know this space of, of traveling in the unconscious. I know how to track people. I read people all the time. So there was a sense that it had got and the way, you know, as an as a as someone who studied neuroscience, I you know, what I think is that as, you know, as you go through trauma, it resets your brain. I know that. It resets your brain. It resets your energetics, it resets your brain. What's interesting to me about, say, the, the Andean tradition is one of the ways that the Ultima Sioux, which are the high-level um, um, Pacos, one of the ways they get initiated is they get hit by lightning, and it rewires their brain. And we could say they dissociated. We could say all kinds of things. We could put it in magical terms, but they get rewired. And in their rewiring, they are able now to hear the mountains, to hear the apus. The apus are the mountains in Peru. Some of the mountains are apus. Some of the, some of the mountains are mountains. Apus are these wise beings that, that give guardianship, that give information, that give solace, that um, are, you know, just there for, you know, to, to refer to. And they help the pacos with their, with their work. Um, I'll tell you a story in a minute about that. Um, they help. They help keep them alive and well. Um, so this idea that um, you get rewired and you can hear the spirit beings, I think, is is core to the shamanic traditions. Um, if you get really into um, um, very literal 
explanations about shamanism, that word comes from Siberia, and you know, from the, the, the a tri one tribe in Siberia, and no one is a shaman except for those guys. There are people that get into, you know, that's their, they have a certain kind of version of shamanism and nothing else is shamanism. But I think we have to use it as an umbrella term for all these indigenous kinds of ways of going into that other space. People would argue with me on that, but um, it's got to be called something, and it's definitely not psychology. Yeah, so, sorry to interrupt you, but just an interesting side note on that, I, it, because I, it's a common argument that you hear, but I think that argument very often also comes from people who are not familiar with this work, too, uh, or, or maybe more familiar with it on an intellectual level. But I think actually if you look at, I mean, it's very interesting because the word shaman in, in, in that Siberian tradition, it comes from sama, which they think means to know. And for example, I've spent a lot of time with a group of people called the Shpibo people, and their word for ayahuasca, which is one of their main teacher plants, is uni, which means to know. And so someone who works with uni is an onaya, which means one who knows. And I, I was just speaking to, to, to my girlfriend. We, we were mentioning I'm, I'm coming from Russia, uh, which is an interesting story. But um, you know, she was telling me that the traditional name for the plant medicine people here, uh, for a curandero, for a healer, actually has to do with knowledge. It's one who knows. So, you know, I, I, I think it's very nitpicky when people say that, but the roots of these things, the, the words etymologically across cultures, across societies, actually all point to the same thing. So I think it's, it's very useful, as you said, to, to use that word, and it's, it, it's not out of disrespect to anyone at all. Yeah, I agree. I think the people who get caught up in it are the people who have studied that tradition and they don't they they see differences in the other traditions and they, they you know they get sort of third what Joan would call well all of us in the in, the, in this tradition would call the third level, um, which is this is right and that's wrong. These are the rules. These are the details. I'm like, N yeah, no. I mean, this is there. There are lots of ways to transcend this reality and to get into that other reality and do what the work is. So the, the other thing that was interesting to me about what you said about nature um, was I in Alaska, I spent a lot of similar kinds of time. I, I ended up, just you know how synchronicities are, um, I put myself through college by working for my dad. My dad stayed in Alaska. My mom moved to California. My dad owned this company, created this company that um, served... Um, um, petroleum companies, you know, um, in Alaska looking for coal and, and gas and oil and all those kinds of things. So he would go up and create a little tent camp with generators and Quonset hut tents. And it was a little hotel. He'd drop in, you know, big range stove ranges and freezers and food, you know, it would all be helicoptered in. Um, and then you just have this summer camp for these guys and they would helicopter out and take core samples, you know, and various different things things that they would do. And um, I was able to be one of the people that ran one of those camps for several summers. And so when the guys were out with their helicopter and they were all in their place, I'm in this camp all by myself in the middle of the Brooks Range, at the top of the Ar Arctic Circle, at the foot of Denali, all these amazing places where there are no other people. And it is, there is that sense of solitude and aloneness but also that sense of connection with like you're part of this whole amazing thing and you're a place where maybe no other human has ever been before 
And there's this sense of, I'm thankful for all the things that we brought here so I can live, but I can, I'm also, like you said, there's this awe of, of the interaction and connection. And up there, the, the northern lights, you know, the aurora borealis would fill the skies. Um, in the summertime, it was fascinating because the sun would just kind of pop down below the horizon and then come back up. So you had a little bit of dusk for a few hours. And in those few hours of dusk, the sky would just undulate with purple and pink and um, green. And it was amazingly awing, awe-inspiring and um, and magical. And it brought up in me all that kind of stuff of you know, this connection to earth and this connection to nature and this feeling held by nature. And I think that's another interesting thing about the shamanic, the sh you know, someone who's initiated, however you're initiated or called to shamanism, is often that trauma piece makes you distrust humans. So you tend to gravitate towards nature because it's safer. Pachamama is the big mama. She's the one you want to go to. Or your biological mother might have been a little iffy. You know, she might not have been able to entrain you to a normal nervous system. But Pachamama, she's got that steady rhythm, and she can bring you back home and bring you back to yourself. Another thing that's interesting about the Andean tradition that I think Joan mentioned um, is we all have within us this Inca seed. And this is this is this part of the Andean cosmovision is within us there is this spark of creation that each one of us has that's individual and it is our full potential. It's also our inner compass and it faces north. And what happens in trauma is that gets overridden by needing to control our life and our environment and trying to figure out who we are, creating um, dysfunctional personality constructs to ensure that you get by. That whole thing gets shut down. And one of the things I watch happen in people healing from trauma is when you can get them out of their intellect, out of their logical mind, and there are lots of different ways to do this. You can use breath work, you can use psychedelics, but when you can get into that altered state, they can get outside all the dysfunction that's, that they think is their personality, that they think is who they are, that they identify with, and they can start to source from their Inca seed again. And I think that's where real healing happens, is where that internal part of you that knows who you are can start to come back online. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting you say that, uh, you know, specifically with trauma, because I, you know, even recently in, in kind of this more modern psychedelic-assisted therapy m movement, there there does seem to be a lot of very positive results with things like MDMA, with psilocybin, really helping people with trauma. Um, and and for a lot of psychology, that's that's quite rare. I mean, psychology didn't, and, and, and it's not to, to 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 you know downplay or downgrade the the validity of psychology, but but kind of more modern medicines in that way really didn't have a very high success rate. You know, just kind of chronic ailments in general. 
Um, but especially with the, the mind and, and things like trauma. And some of the preliminary research seems to be very positive uh, with some of these substances being able to help trauma, you know, specifically PTSD and, and, and war veterans and, and things like that. Um, but one of the interesting things I find with, with plant medicine in general is that it almost seems like one of the requisites for healing is that it does need to bypass the mind. Um, because the mind, in a way, if we were able to solve it at the level of the mind, then then we would all be able to solve it. We could pick up a book and read A, B, and C, and, and our problems would all be gone. Uh, but it seems like not just for trauma, but just, or, or maybe using trauma in a big, bigger sense, which is maybe in a more indigenous way, you know, they would say that, that the original trauma, maybe in a Buddhist sense, is, is just our very existence, this inherent suffering, or maybe in more indigenous philosophies, they would say that, that the nature of trauma is we've forgotten who we are and where we come from. Maybe in more religious traditions, this idea of like the fall from Eden, we, we've become separated from our true essence. But the plants actually, they, they tend to bypass the mind and, and they take us, as you said, into this more somatic experience, this experience that's, that's beyond the mind. You know, even the mind that tries to rationalize or justify the experience, at, at some point it, it tends to break down. Um, so do you think that's that's part of the role of plants, uh, maybe just in general? Because, it, you know, as you said, it, it does seem like they're very successful with trauma in that way. And very much in the way you said is is somehow getting people out of their minds. And, and you know, also in the cultures that we come from, we, we do tend to be quite mind oriented. And, and again, not in a bad way. You know, there, there, there's medicine in, in all of our ways of being. But but often in these kind of more quote-unquote Western societies, we are very mind-based, and, and, and a lot of these plants or techniques, you know, even as you mentioned, like a lot of the, like the, the Pacos or the, the Cerdos, these Andean traditions, um, they tend not to speak a lot, as you said. You know, they're, they're not kind of catering to this medicine of the mind. It's something much more somatic, something much more felt, more heart-centered. Yeah, it's, it, from what I... You know, from personal experience, from working with clients for 20 years, um, the mind is actually what creates the dysfunction on some level. The mind locks into a, a way to protect ourselves from that happening again. And so it creates, it creates its own sort of moat around ourselves and it, it insists on being the interface with the world it, you know you, you could put it in psychological terms it creates personas that it insists on you, you have to talk to the hand you know you have to talk to this part of who I am and this part of who I am is often running a dysfunctional program um, for example um, if you have had freeze you know, a sort of a secondary or corollary to freeze is the fawner, the per people pleaser. It's a way to avoid not just trauma, but freezing again. Because in freeze, you lose control. So you don't want to lose control. So the way you have control is by consciously giving away control. It's a very interesting thing that we do. But it's not functional. It's not a good long-term plan. It might get you through your childhood. It might get you through some some part of your life 
but that's the thing that that the that the plants do is they take you past that part of yourself and connect you one with a universal safe thing that's always there both the sky god if you want to call it the matrix the earth these things that are um that are perpetual and always there, more trustworthy in a sense than um, than our, our you know our adults that are, that were in our lives. A lot of people who have freeze ha you know came at the hands of their parents or their, their their the adults that were supposed to keep them safe. So there is this real sense of no safety, this sense of creating a mind structure, personality structures to keep us safe. But those personality structures keep us actually in dysfunction. So the plants are beautiful in that they come through and they say okay, let's break past the mind and allow you to connect one with the universal energy that you've shut out in trying to keep yourself safe and trying to solve it all and control it all. And two, let's get you back in touch with your Inca seed, with your core self, with who you are. And let's make that a direct connection. Let's make it so that you are now speaking to the universe instead of trapped in your mind. And in, in the, the Andeans would not speak of it this way, this literal way, but you see it in their medicine because they speak of having a pokpo, an energy field that that is um, that is reflective of our internal state. So if we are in chaos because we have a personality structure that's driving an agenda to keep safe, but it keeps get throwing us under the bus. We have this discordant energy, and our energy field is discordant. And part of what the Andean tradition is, they say, they say, they don't say, let's let's talk about your problems. They say, bring energy through and restructure your energy field. Bring it back into accord. Bring it back into coherence, and that will feed into your your personality, your mind, that will feed into your body. They see it from, from that source in. So, um, so I forgot where we started, but I think that's, uh, that's um, some interesting stuff to throw out there about healing and energy work and the plants. Oh, we started with the plants. Yeah, so the plants, I think, what's interesting to me is how the plants in the, in the Andean tradition complement each other because the plants are going here, Remember, remember the whole construct. And in the in the um, in the West, we need that reminder. Interestingly, in the Andean perspective, they don't use the plants that are down in the jungles. All they have up there is coca. That's the only plant they have. And coca just makes them feel more euphoric. It gets more um, blood to, through their system for that high altitude. But it's lots of rocks, lots of sky condors it's not a lot of jungle animals so their whole perspective isn't scary and something's hiding in the dark it's wide open skies and that's what we've got to use to heal with is the energy of creation so it's it's a very interesting thing because in the we need the jungle and we need the plants almost because we can't remember that the sky's out there we're caught with all the animals and all the you know all the internal alligators and um, we are needing to remember, like to open up and remember both that open sky and that full potential that we have. The Andeans just use energy to try and transmute that. In the jungles, we use plants. But I think in the West, both are really important. And here's the thing about psychology and, and um 
and um, psychedelic therapy. I think you're right. I think it, they are finding a new way to get through to people. And it's, it's a precipice for psychology because psychology has tried to align with science and be very um, logical and linear and, and um, research-based. And what psych psychedelics are asking psychology to do is to open up into this field of the spiritual realms, of there is more than your mind. With the psychological tools that we've had so far, it's always been treat the brain, because the brain creates your reality. And with the psychedelics, it's saying, actually, let's just shut the brain down for a little bit. It is the brain that we're working with on some level with psychedelics, but it's, 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 you know, the default mode network is a part of your brain that is a big filter. And what psychedelics do is they shut that filter down so that we can start to remember what's out there and we can start to connect again. And I think psychology is going to be really, really kind of forced to step into the spiritual realm to take ownership of how this healing is happening with psychedelics. Hmm. You're in an interesting position in that you were, you were saying you were a deadhead and you spent a lot of time kind of in that scene, in that culture, um, you know, especially in the, in the 60s, early 70s, there, there was a lot of that kind of psychedelic movement was, was really emerging, especially in the U.S., um, and then for, for various reasons, it, it really stopped. It, it came to a halt for, for a number of decades. And then kind of in the last decade, it's, it's really begun to, to, to reemerge again, and especially in the last few years at a, at a very, very fast rate. Um, can you speak maybe a little bit about like what you see kind of in that transition period of, of you know, kind of this, this emergence of this psychedelic culture to, 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 again, a complete halt, and then what you see coming out again? Because it, it seems like there are similarities, but, it, but there's, there's a very different feel to it as well. I mean, it seems, for example, like we were talking about, it's, it's, it's become much more mainstream, and, um, you know, it seems like it's, it's also moving in a, in a different way, but, but also, you know, maybe subject to some of the same things as, as before as well. But you seem like a perfect person to, to be able to speak about that. Um, it's, it's an interesting phenomena. I think the government is what shut it down, right? This whole war on drugs, um, this, this feeling like people were beginning a little too alive and well and conscious, I think. Um, when the 60s and 70s happened, there was a huge cultural explosion and, and change. Um, the birth control pill came out, sexuality came out, um, all kinds of, you know, all kinds of things. Women's, women's um, rights started to become important. There was a huge cultural shift. And um, at some point it all kind of, and, and the Vietnam War, War was going on and there was all kinds of um, protests about that. And these, seems, these things all seemed to be linked and for whatever reason, I think our government decided that it was getting a little too chaotic and a little too hard to control, and they shut it down, you know, under the guise of a war on drugs. Um, you mean, there are drugs that aren't good for us, for sure, but not psychedelics. For some reason, the psychedelics got put in the same class as, you know, heroin and fentanyl and all those kinds of, you know, they're all Schedule One drugs. And 
they very much should not be. They're, they're helper plants. There are helper plants out there. And it's very small doses. Opium is a good thing. You know, it can take away pain. It's our, there's also this human thing of we want to, you know, like we want to distill the active ingredient and use it, you know. That's a, that's a whole other thing that we, we, we distill the active ingredient. Like we take cocaine out of coca and we take opium out, you know, out of, you know, we take, opium out of the poppies and we make fentanyl or what and in its natural form in its plant form there's a consciousness there that is trying to engage the people there's this great relationship between humans and plants and humans are weird <laughs> they just get greedy they want they get addictive they do they want these things so i get a little bit the war on drugs but i think mostly it was a political thing and it definitely didn't have anything to do with psychedelics they got scheduled they got put in the wrong class um, but i think that there's a political reason for that because they were raising the consciousness of humanity and so if you if you kind of look at, you know, you can you can put your foot down on on a tiger, but eventually that tiger is going to rise. You know, that consciousness, that that forefront of humanity, of cultural, um, of of the human consciousness, is pushing forward, and these plants and these substances are coming back in and saying, "We're not going to be shut down again. This is an important part of your evolution, but we're going to come in from the side door." The thing that's interesting to me about the side door that it's coming through is the side door of veterans, of veterans who need to heal from PTSD. This is the pivotal place that's making this more mainstream. I mean, it's going, it's, there are all kinds of circles and all kinds of other things. There's a lot of spiritual revolution that's happening as well. But I find the, the, the connection between, especially like MDMA and psilocybin and veterans and seeing veterans heal from their PTSD, they have seen horrible, horrible things. And nothing, you can't, you can't just medicate them and hope they'll be okay. They need to change. They need to transcend that mindset that's holding them and, 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 and work, through the, work through the stuff, the stuff that they don't want to face. Um, on these medicines, working with these medicines, we have essentially the... Um, the help, the, the alliance, the support of these plants to go and face these things. I mean, you can talk about it neurologically that the amygdala gets softened, you know, that we don't get, we're not so afraid to see with these things. But you can also look at it from a spiritual perspective. And now we have support. Now there's something more than just us versus the world. Now we can go into these things and start to look at them and start to heal. So I think this is, this is just one of those big beasts that is part of humanity it's always been part of humanity and and that we tried to shut it down for a while was was sort of um short-sighted it's it you know anything that you try and repress is going to come out louder than it was before and i don't know that you can put this one back in the box it's just become so so big and so mainstream um but the thing that worries me um is that psychology is going to take these beautiful medicines and make them all about the brain again, or science is going to do that. And you're like, you're 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 missing a whole level of awareness, a whole a whole bandwidth of um, of of connection that 
that is out there of information, of wisdom, of guidance that is lost when you keep reducing it into this, this materialistic, proven, um, you know, this molecule will, will do that to that molecule. This, you know, this molecule will, will excite or dampen these neurons and make them put these, you know, these neuro, neurotransmitters out into the, yes, that happens, but that's sort of, that's sort of the interface you know, that's, that's the workings of the car. It's not the driver of the car. You mentioned Carlos Castaneda, who I think is a fascinating kind of figure. Um, he, he, like yourself and, and also like me, I mean, he, th those books that he wrote really seemed to spark a lot of people's interest in this field uh, and an interest that, that maybe really was very small or, or not there at all. And uh, I know kind of in, in <clears throat> more recent times he's he's been criticized, maybe the validity of his work or the timeline of it. Uh, but the more I've done this work and, and when I think about what I read and, and, and what he wrote about, you know, especially at a time when there was very little information about these practices, I mean, he, it seems to me he must have been writing from a place of direct experience, you know, the validity of whether he actually did these things and the, the timelines may be in question, but uh, he, he really did seem to, to be at least speaking uh, from some place of truth. Um, is that something like that you've thought about or that, that, that his work had, had an influence on your work or, or really sparked a curiosity or... Um, kind of gave you an impetus to, to really, I don't know, see things in a different way or, or, or eventually, you know, search out for these Pacos or these Cardos who uh, maybe through Castaneda, like something awakened in you that, that, that really made you think about things in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was like 15, 16, 17 in high school doing a lot of psychedelics, going to a lot of Grateful Dead shows and reading Carlos Castaneda. And so there was this this whole thing that just popped open in me, which was kind of getting that there was a spiritual or energetic realm. And when I say energetic, I mean a conscious energetic realm. Um, in... Our Western tradition, we seem to only go as far as the mind. Everything is a product of the mind. But what, what happens when you go on psychedelics, what happens is you open into this space of realizing the connectivity between everything. And so I was having the visceral experience through psychedelics of that happening. I was going to Grateful Dead shows and having a group experience of that happening. And then I was reading these Carlos Castaneda books where he was talking about sort of that's those states of consciousness to heal and to heal people. And, and um, I, at the time, I just thought it was all true and all, you know, I didn't question it. And then, as you say, as you go further in, you realize he was actually an anthropologist. He was writing about, you know, things that he found in, in Mexico on his journeys there. Um, but I think when you start to go into that space where everything is connected, everything is connected, and you start to study a medicine, and it starts to come through you. I know that happens to me with the Andean stuff. I don't, I don't know how some white girl from Alaska and California 
and now Texas ever got to be someone who speaks with authority about the, um, the Andean tradition. But I started studying it, and it started to come through me. And I think that, you know, that's probably what happened to him, too. I think it's what happens to you on, on this journey is that information's already stored there in the collective. And once you open the doors to it, you're privy to it. You can connect to it, and you can work with it. And you can, um, even though you weren't raised in that tradition, that information is accessible. And I, 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 that's how I hold it, you know, what he did. Um, I thought he brought through another layer of understanding of human consciousness that was missing, but, but really compatible with, that, with the psychedelic movement that was happening at that time. And this, and, you know, it's it's a it's a thing that you know. There's a concept in um, in a lot of indigenous traditions called soul retrieval, and it seems like every time we say it's only the mind, it's only the brain, we have soul loss. Literally, we've lost the soul because that doesn't exist. It's all the brain, but we lose that connection to to that higher consciousness, and we keep having these soul retrievals when we bring back the psychedelics. We keep remembering, oh, there's this other level of ourselves. There's the soul level. There's the connection to source. There is the source. Um, and then the mind level, the control level, whatever that is, no, we got to shut that down and we have to put it in a box. But that has to be expressed. And I think I think that's part of our, our human evolution. And that's one of the things that the Andean tradition actually just has implicit in it is this these seven steps of, of human of developing human consciousness where we become more and more aware of our connection to the to the source energy. And there are seven, you know, seven steps up. And the very seventh level is what we are what is called Titanchis Ranti. And Titanchis is God, and Ranti means same or similar. So the seventh step is we are the same as God. That's when we have got to the very highest level of, human, of consciousness that a human can contain um, or can, can express or can imbue. So it's, it's always there. It's always trying to come through. It gets tamped down by the third level, by the people that want to be in control, the people that have, you know, various fears. Oh, there's a lot of things that shut it down. But I think when you start to get up to those higher levels, you connect into the human consciousness that has ever, always ever been there. And it be, and you start to be able to pull that stuff through. Could you speak a bit more about your work with physics? I, I mean, I, I find that that fascinating, and it's um, it's an interesting thing because I, I, I'm also very fascinated by physics, um, and yet at the same time, often in this work, you you get people who, who kind of pull these these you know very specific ideas from physics, but kind of use them in, in all sorts of ways to to also suit their own narratives. <laughs> um, but that that phenomena, I think, of, of, of non-locality is really fascinating. And I think something that we, for most of us, we don't really maybe think about or, or ponder what that really means. You know, this, this idea that when something is affected in, in one place at, at, you know, seemingly impossible distances, uh, something can be affected at, at the same time, kind of bypassing this idea of of, of all matter moving at, at, at 
you know, potentially the speed of light, but that something is, is even going beyond that. Um, and also that idea of, of implicit consciousness, because in so much of this work, if you boil it down, it, it, it is getting to this idea of what it means to be conscious of, of, again, who we are, where we come from. I mean, these are very indigenous ideas. It's, it's not something that's, that's even new or, or modern. I mean, this is the, the root of what it means to be a human being. Um, and, and so many of these practices do seem to be asking us to really uh, to face that in a way, to face who we are, uh, to, to, to face the, this idea of, of what does it mean not only to be human, but, you know, as you said, we, we all have this Inca seed. What does it mean to be me? Like, who am I? A am I my past? Am I my traumas? Am I con my conditionings? Am I my, my thoughts, my fears, my, my beliefs? Uh, or, or is there something beyond that? And, and often these practices, uh, whether it's through a gentle way or a not so gentle way, uh, bring us bring us into a confrontation with that. So, but yeah, I, I, I find that work and, and especially that idea that that you studied physics to be very fascinating. So maybe if you could speak a bit more about uh, kind of your work or, or that idea of implicit consciousness and, and maybe how that relates to to, to what you've discovered and. And, and kind of this more, for, for lack of better words, as we said, this, this kind of shamanic nature of the work you do. Yeah, I, I would love to. I, first of all, I studied physics a long time ago in the 90s, in the 80s. So it's not been something I've been staying, you know, keeping on top of as I moved into other things. But I did take away some core things um, back in the 80s. Um, John Clauser was a physicist who had done some experiments in 1972. And um, he was the, you know, sort of the, the big experimenter that talked about non-locality. Since then, they're now cal calling it entanglement theory. And um, I haven't followed all the details on entanglement theory, but I know it's rooted in non-locality. But I'll tell you the experiment that it's really simple to explain that just says it all. You take a calcium ion and you energize it so it becomes unstable. And so it's going to break apart. And eventually it breaks apart into two cadmium ions. And because this original thing was stable in the sense that it, before you energized it, it wasn't you know, in any kind of um, level of instability, it means that um, it's angular momentum was zero. But when you t these two break off, each one is spinning, and one's spinning clockwise, we could say, and one's spinning counterclockwise. They have equal and opposite angular momentum. So let's say plus one and minus one add up to zero, add up to the zero that they came from. Does that make sense? So, they t so they're going at equal and opposite um, angular momentums, and you can do experiments where you can isolate one of those, and you can send it through long lines of polarizers back and forth, and you can change the polarity of its spin. So it too, so let's say you take the, the counterclockwise one, you can change it so it's now going clockwise, just like the other one. And if you, um, if you put long enough lengths in your experiment, you know, you, you're running these, this thing back and forth through long enough lengths, it, it, will, um, it will be enough distance to where you could measure what would happen in the speed of light. 
it's hard, hard to measure what will happen if it's like, like this. But if you can start to separate things out, you can say, oh, this is how much time it would take for this cadmium ion to talk to this cadmium ion. So they changed the polarity of this cadmium ion and immediately, faster than the speed of light, this one changes to counterclockwise so that they can stay equal and opposite, which tells us that something's happening faster than the speed of light and nothing in physics can happen faster than the speed of light. That's the, that's the constant of of the universe is the speed of light. It's the communicate, nothing can communicate faster than the speed of light. So if these two are communicating with each other somehow, in sync with each other, you know, adjusting to each other's spin faster than the speed of light, it implies many things. It can imply there's no space. It can imply there's no time. But it can also imply that there's a consciousness that's already implicit between them. So they already know what's going on. And I go with that version, and that is the version that you'll find in um, shamanism, is everything is conscious, everything is connected through consciousness. In the Andean tradition, what they say is there's an immaterial universe created out of an energy called calci. And calci is a conscious, living energy. And absolutely everything is created out of calci. Everything is conscious, everything is living, everything is connected. Um, if you take those two molecules, if you come back to the, the Clauser experiment, if you take those two molecules and you think about the, you know, I, the Big Bang theory, all, the, all, those, all those pieces of matter that were stuck together in the very beginning, blown apart, all matter is still in is still in conversation with itself, um, and it's it's probably even bigger than that. But what I love about the Kausipacha version, what I love about the Anian tradition is they're saying the same thing. They're saying there's this fabric of consciousness that everything comes from, and we're all an expression of it. And not only that, that when we are conceived, when the egg and the sperm come together. A drop of that calci comes and drops down into that two-egg organism, and that's our Inca seed. And it's individual. The calci pacha is expressing a million permutations of creativity. It's the creative force. It's creating duck-billed platypuses. <laughs> it's creating humans. It's creating spiders and, sp and scorpions. It's creating rocks and bananas. It's creating everything. And in that two-celled organism that our parents created with their egg and their sperm, bink, it's creating again. And it's creating a new thing. It's creating a Christina and it's creating a Jason. And these are going to be expressions of the Calcipacha, but connected still to the Calcipacha, still part of that field of consciousness that we all came from. And then, of course, that's creation. So, you know, the healing is engaging with the calcipacha, right? It's engaging with the Inca seed, which is individualized. It's engaging with the human body, which has sort of torqued itself in, into some kind of structure because of experience that we have on the planet. Same with our, our, our energy field. Um, and there's this, this thing of healing is restructuring ourselves, restructuring our conscious living energy, to be more functional.
that, and, and to me, that is the, you know, the core of the Andean tradition of, shaman, of shamanism. It's the core of a lot of the traditions. They just talk about it differently. I had this interesting moment on my walk. I take these walks every morning with my dog. And I had this interesting moment. I've, I've I spent a fair amount of time in the jungles of Peru as well, not just the mountains, and did ayahuasca down there with, um, with the, you know, indigenous um, ayahuasca girls. Um, and so she started talking to me, long time ayahuasca. She, that voice of the mother started talking to me, um, and I was I was walking in the forest here many many years after all the jungle experience, and I was. I was steeped in the tradition of the Andes, and she popped through and she said, you know you're doing the same thing in both traditions. And I go, what are you talking about? And she said, in the Andean tradition, you pull up this big force of energy from the earth, and you, you source from it, and you heal with it, and you hold people in that space with it. She goes, you are in the Andean tradition pulling it up through your intention. She goes, but in, in the in the tradition, you know, in the Shipibo, she, I don't know the people tradition really, but she said in the um, what, I'm doing the same thing is what she said. I'm pulling up that energy of Pachamama and I'm running it through somebody and I'm helping reinform them and I'm helping rearrange them and the Iowa Scarrow is helping me hold that space for them so that they can have the same thing. She goes, it's the same medicine. It's just, do, we're just doing it in different ways. You go, she goes, you're pulling up that energy as the Paco, I'm pulling up that energy as the plant. And went, wow, that's fascinating. So you you came to like it sounds like one of the first paths you you came upon in, in kind of this more traditional indigenous and especially Andean way of working was through um, Alberto Violdo, who probably a, a lot of the audience is, is familiar with because he's, he, he's quite well known. He's, he's written a number of books. Um, could you speak about uh, a bit about what that experience was for you? Like, like what you, you found from that, what, what some of the significant teachings were and, and also kind of how that, that influenced you or, or what you learned from that? Yeah. Um, for me, it was a wellspring. It was a, um, a life it was a life jacket. I was drowning. I was at a place in my life where um, the trauma hit was just building to such a degree that I felt like I was just really struggling. I had a lot of problems with depression. Um, and so I sort of limped into his first class going, one, I want to learn shamanism, but I know I have to heal before I can help anybody else. And I remember writing them a letter and saying, I would really like to take your classes, but I'm a mess. And they said, come, um, because you're, you know, as you un unravel yourself, you will become a better healer. And part of his perspective, he does a lot of archetypal kind of things. He, he interfaces his teachings with a lot of Western perspective. And one of their um, archetypes was the wounded healer. And so um, I learned his tradition, and he, he was working, he, he sort of put a lot of things together. He was an anthropologist, a medical anthropologist. He studied um, a lot of different traditions and ended up in the Andes. One of the things that he said um, in his journey with studying different 
traditions, different shamanic traditions, was that the Andean tradition was the most pure. It hadn't been adulterated with religion and with alcoholism. And so he, that was the one he leaned into the most and was most informed by. But in hindsight, I can see that he was also informed by some of the other traditions that are more jungle-like, more you know, work, worrying about entities, worrying about energies coming and attacking you. Um, and so I learned his version of shamanism. He, he, in a sense, he was kind of like Michael Harner. He put together a lot of different things and um, made, it, made it something that was accessible to the Western mind. And I think it's a great entry point. I am completely um, in gratitude for the years I spent there. Um, and I learned how to teach. I learned how to um, hold that space for others to heal. And the thing, I think the thing that I learned the most in my time with Alberto, besides having this connection with the Carol, because I went to Peru with him several times, and, and it just changed my life to go up into those mountains and do ceremony with the Pacos over and over again. But the, the main thing I learned in terms of being a healer was how to hold this space of the unconscious and how to get into the unconscious and how the underpinnings of, of what what is making us ill or what is keeping us stuck in trauma and dysfunction is unconscious. And like we were talking about before, you're not going to get there with the mind. And so he brought in breath work, um, and uh, he didn't actually really um, um, fully fully embrace the energy medicine itself of the Andes. He didn't teach all the different you know ways of tuning the energy and things like that, but he did bring in the idea that you are, you are healing with energy. Um, and, and I think, you know, the thing that I got, like I said, the thing I got from it the most was one, how to track into the unconscious and how to hold that space for somebody to heal. I think we tend to want to um, fix somebody, especially in psychology, even as a shaman, you can want to go like, what's wrong with this person? Just, just all you got to do is you know just change this you'll be fine you know just let me just fix you and healing comes from this place and this is i learned this from from my work with alberto of opening up sort of like this cave this space of undifferentiated energy right the void this place where you can deconstruct yourself to reconstruct yourself and you cannot do that from the mind the mind's very controlling it's very it's filled with ideas it's filled with this is who I am and this is what I am and I got to watch out for that guy and watch out for this guy and if you can feel safe enough to go into this space a couple things happen the first thing that happens is all that unconscious stuff that needs to heal starts to surface and you have to you have to deal with it you have to work through the emotions. You have to work through the somatic, how you're carrying it somatically. You have to purge. It's a lot like um, um, a psychedelic experience or a plant medicine experience, especially Aya. You have to purge for a while all the stuff that starts to come through. But then it evolves into this space. If you can just hold that space as a healer for that person to reorganize themselves into who their better version of themselves is. So there's this 
um, this real sense of we're not going to fix this from the mind. And I think that was the brilliance that he brought to our culture because he came through sort of in this in the I think his shaman healer sage came out in the 90s, early 90s, maybe late 90s, late 90s. And um, it was revolutionary in the sense that he was saying he was taking psychology because he understood psychology. I think his undergrad was in psychology and he was moving it forward into saying, and this is, there's another place to go with this. Healing's not reorganizing the way you think. Healing's reorganizing the way you perceive. And the way you perceive is changed by having a different experience of yourself. And so for that, I'm really grateful. I think that you know his, his teachings on that level were, um, were really exceptional and brilliant. Um, and I think I did need to go to the next level of learning the tradition because the energy medicine and the, the, the instruction about the levels of consciousness and the Inca seed are all really important aspects that were not part of my, te- my learning with him that I needed to also learn. And I also needed to unlearn that I was going to be attacked by some kind of energetic something or other, and I had to protect myself from that. In the Andean tradition, you raise your vibration. You have healing techniques. You have regular practices, and you raise your vibration, and nothing penetrates your energy field. It's yours. The only way anything would penetrate your energy field is if you invited it in. So there's this real accountability in the tradition that wasn't in his version, and there's this um, there's this sense of power that you have because you're not you know subjected to all the scary you know entities out there that are going to attack you. You have tools. You know what to do if you feel scared. You can you can clean and clear and raise your energetic vibration by pulling down the calci by using the calci to your advantage. So it, it, there's, there's another level that I needed to go to to, to continue this work. Could you speak a little more about that? Because it's, um, as you said, it's, it's a very common ideology, worldview, and in a lot of shamanic traditions, which is, is this idea that you spoke about, about uh, bad energies coming in and, and maybe Amazonian Cosmovision, this idea of bruharia, of, of witchcraft, but but you find it in religious traditions, you find it in, in pagan traditions, um, and you know e- even I, I would say in, in in our modern worldview too. You know we speak about trauma, for example, and and this idea that that someone did something to me and that's affecting me and I can't heal from it because that energy is still there. It's still penetrating me. Even though it's maybe over, it's still present with me, and it's like it's attacking me all the time. And 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 I don't have the tools to, as you said, to protect myself, to 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 raise that that vibrational level in in order to to protect myself. So, uh, I, I think it's a very common uh, way of looking at things. What what from your experience with with the Pacos and, and the Cerdos were. Maybe one their worldview around that uh, as to like what is the nature the reality of of those negative energies and uh, and maybe if there's any techniques you can share that that they shared with you which is how to because it's also very interesting what you said you know a big part of healing is perception and and I think that's that that's a vital point you know so much of our pain and suffering comes actually from our perception how we see the world. 
Um, so, you know, maybe techniques or tools or, or, or even just world visions of, of how they, they relayed that to you to, to kind of bring that into, into order, into balance, into harmony. Yeah, let me um, start with um, the Andean perspective. I think every environment shapes the way a culture develops. And the Carol are up in these mountains, you know, 17,000 feet, 14,000 feet, way, way up in the sky. And it's cold, and there's not a lot. And they terrace, as you've seen the pictures, they, they, their agricultural is, you know, program is to put rocks around the mountains so the dirt doesn't fall away. And then they plant in those terraces. They walk llamas and alpacas. Um, they're very, very connected to the earth, very connected to the open sky, but most importantly, they depend on each other. They have to be collective. They have to be a community to survive the cold weather, to survive um, the food ration, the, you know, the, the limits on food. So at the core of their, um, of their worldview is this concept of munai, of love, of being you know, coming from Munai. And, and I, I watched a, um, a, um, a, a um, talk recently by a translator, one of, the, one of the Carol translators, and he said, he said, you know, I'm speaking to you in English right now, um, but when, when you speak in Quechua, which is the language of the Carol, English is a, is a language of the mind, and we're having a conversation mind to mind. He goes, but when you speak in Quechua, you're speaking heart to heart. He said, even when you don't like somebody, they're still your brother. You're like, brother, I don't like you. There's this sense of, of there's always this community, always this sense of, of connection. And so you need each other, so you're not sending magic darts at each other. You're not undermining each other. You're not putting curses on each other. You're, and so all that kind of stuff is, um, is not even part of really of, of the mindset, at least as I've learned it through um, Juan and Yvonne Nunes de Prado. Um, Juan spent a lot of time with that with the Carol and with uh, three main teachers of the Andean tradition and and they taught they essentially what they taught him was the darkness that you're perceiving is what you are creating in response to the external world so you can slow your sami down sami is kausai in the created world so Kausai is the immaterial world, and then in the created world, a subset of the Kausai is called Sami. It's a very refined form of Kausai that's used for creation. All of us are made of Sami. Everything we have is made of conscious living energy called Sami. Humans have the unique capacity to slow their Sami down because they're in conflict with each other because they're like, I'm strong, I can do this. Oh, I'm scared at the same time. They're, they're, in, they're always sort of presenting a persona but also not really expressing their Inca seed. And so um, whenever we're out of alignment with ourselves, whenever we feel you know, threatened, whenever something is, is gnawing at us, we'll slow our Sami down and it becomes what we call hucha. 
And hucha is not considered negative. It's not considered evil. It's just slow sami. So it's on a spectrum. This is where I come back to physics. It's interesting to me. Like if you think of a light spectrum, there's red light and there's purple light. They're just different frequencies. We can slow our high vibrational sami down to a low vibrational sami. So the idea about external things being scary and, and making, you know, attaching to you is conceivably a perceptual issue. Our reaction to something being out there that we feel threatened by can slow our Sami down to where it feels heavy. And we will say that thing is attaching to us, making us heavy. But in sense, we've slowed ourselves down. It's our own hucha, our own slow sami that we're reacting to, not an external force. And so what the Andeans would say is any of that stuff, even no matter what it is, it's sami. It's created out of sami. Only humans have hucha. So it's not going to get into your field. Your field is sovereign. Nothing can get into your energy field, your popo, without invitation in the, in the Andean tradition. Um, it's absolutely, it's not, it's not a, um, it's not like a uh, impermeable fortress. It's permeable. Sami comes and goes all the time. And so there's this sense of when you go into fear, you create sort of a rim of hucha that makes you more separate. So you start to be less connected and less engaging, less in aini, in reciprocity with the outside world. So this, um, the idea of there being external forces, there being ghosts, there being these things, what, what the Andean tradition would say is, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, doesn't matter. It can't enter your field. If you're feeling something about it, just pull more sami from the Kalsaipacha over your energy field and bring it back up or bring some Sami up from the earth and feel supported by her if you feel scared. There are tools, and I can tell you how to do each of these things. It's very simple um, to, to keep you in that sovereign place so that even if there is stuff out there, and that's debatable, we can have all kinds of, you know, who knows, right? Um, but in the tradition itself, it would say it's not, you don't have to, it doesn't, it's not going to penetrate you unless you invite it in. Like I hear people say, I'm carrying my, my ancestors, I'm carrying the trauma, all these kinds of things. And what I say to them and what, what the Andeans would say is, you don't have to carry it. It's a choice. This is what I love about this tradition. It's always a choice. There is no victimhood here. You can say, that's actually not mine to carry. I'm going to put it back outside my bubble and let whoever it is work with it on their own. My mom will probably grow by working her own stuff instead of me carrying her. Um, ancestral stuff. The buck stops here. I'm going to I'm going to make changes in the way that I do things from a conscious place. I have choice. I can choose not to continue to molest or not to continue to abuse. I can make those choices. <clears throat> 
So it comes from this place of raising your consciousness so you can see what the things are to choose and to not choose. Um, and then just running Sami to keep yourself clean and clear, to raise your vibration when you drop into creating hucha more than anything, um, more so than something attached to you and I got to clean it off. It's more like I'm reacting to something outside myself that's making me feel small or insecure. So I need to boost my Sami back up because I lowered it because I went into this fear place. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm sure it makes sense, but yeah. Questions? Um, you, you said that when you first encountered the Kerdos, you, you were doing a lot of, uh, or you did a number of ceremonies when you came to them, uh, to, to Peru. Uh, what was that like? Because I, I would imagine many people listening to this uh, are, are probably more familiar with, with like plant medicine ceremonies, like doing ayahuasca in the jungle or, or working with, you know, wachuma, San Pedro or, or, or mushrooms. But as you said, often these ceremonies uh, in the Andes, uh, with the Kerdo, with the Pacos, they, they don't necessarily involve very strong plants. And, uh, I mean, I, I remember even when I, when I came to the Andes, I, I had been almost a decade, I think in the, in the Amazon. And when I first came to these mountains, it was almost like I had vertigo all the time because I was so used to this kind of contained kind of claustrophobic, very womb-like. And, and I find, I found very comforting kind of atmosphere of the jungle. I mean, it was, to me, it was beautiful. But when I first came to the mountains, it was like, you know, stepping into a new world. And it was just, I mean, I, I was almost like out of my body for, for months because it was just such an expanse. And, and, and even in the beginning, I was thinking, you know, it seems kind of limiting. They're not working with plants. But, but then you go up to these apus and you're at, you know, 4,000, 4,500 meters. Um, and there's a real, a real power there that's very tangible. This, this silence, this, uh, this feeling of being very small, of, of in the hands of God, in the cradle of God, this, this also very visceral force of like at any moment, the environment could change to, to my detriment. And uh, I think it commands a certain respect, much like plants, you know, they very much command a, a respect, even though in general, the, the setting you're doing in, in is quite safe. But when you're up in those, those mountains, uh, you know, much, much the same, like it commands a certain respect. I mean, you do need to pay respect or, or the nature can, can dispatch of you very quickly. But, um, what, what were those ceremonies like for you? Um, because I, I think that's a, that's something that a lot of people aren't familiar with is, is this lineage of, of, of the Kerdos, the Pacos, a lot of these Andean traditions, as you said, they, they may be working, for example, like with coca, but uh, for people who aren't familiar, coca is, it's a very mild plant in, in general and in, in, in how it's dosed and how it's worked with. It's kind of like drinking tea or coffee, um, in, in terms of its effect, but, but what were those ceremonies like for you and what did you, what did you learn or, or take from those? Uh, interesting question. Yeah, it, I, it, it, I think in our Western culture, it's a little bit hard to get there in the beginning. Um, I think in the beginning, I was like, what, what they are, you know, that we would do despacho ceremonies over and over and over and over again. We would go from one place to another place to another place and do despacho ceremonies. And in the beginning, I didn't quite get it. I'm like, 
all right, we're going to sit in a circle and we're going to, this guy's going to blow into some leaves and we're going to put a bunch of stuff in this piece of paper and, um, okay, that was fun. And then he's going to, you know, wipe it over you and it's going to be put in the fire. All right. But the more I started to, um, to engage the medicine and the more I started to understand the medicine, what I realized is they are engaging the calcipacha. They're engaging the spirit being. So you sit down with them and they take a couple of three, like three coca leaves and they call in all the spirit beings, all the apus, all the mountains. They call in the nustas, the waters. They call in all the male and fe female energies. They call in their own, per they call in the condor. They call in all kinds of different things that are a part of their environment that are considered spirit beings. And they're opening up this space in a sense that when we're in our minds, we don't conceive. You know, it's like we were talking about in our Western culture, like, yeah, whatever, okay, so he blew some stuff into a leaf, or very literally, blew some stuff into some leaves, and he said some names, and okay, what, and now he's going to put it in that piece of paper. But when you start to develop the consciousness, the perception of energy, which is part of their tradition, you start to realize, oh, he just opened the bandwidth of energy information, of frequency, of connection to the spirit realm, and he's calling it in, and he's bringing it into this little piece of paper, and he's putting our prayers in there, and he's asking this whole universe to support our little prayers, and then we put it in the fire, and it goes back out into the universe. It's this sort of reciprocity that is part of their tradition that's called Aini, and so I think in the beginning, it is sort of, it seems like a strange ritual, and you're like, okay, that's nice. It isn't, it isn't dynamic like, like energy, med I mean, like um, plant medicine. But if you study the tradition, you start to become more and more aware as you go up to what's called the conscious patanya, these seven levels of consciousness, and you start to be able to engage and see and perceive that there's another realm beyond the mind, and that that realm is starting to join you, and that realm is starting to support you, and you're starting to be part of engagement with this realm. Um, and that is the beauty of this tradition, is it takes us beyond the Western mind into, back into connection with, um, with the spiritual, with the spiritual, um, with the metaphysical, whatever you want to call it, with the Kausaipacha. Um, it takes us out of that little sense of self of the human. And like you said, the sky is that place of expansiveness, and that's what they're asking you to do with your consciousness is by perceiving and by working your hucha, by keeping your sami levels high, by you know keeping your vibration high and facing your fears and facing your internal stuff, you become clearer and clearer and more congruent with the energy of creation. You become part of that system. You be, there becomes less dis, you know, difference between you and it. We're not in our own little mind so much. We're part of this whole expansive matrix that John you know, Klauser was talking about in terms of non-locality. We're part of this whole thing that we engage with. So it took me a while to, to really be able to see the value in it but one of the thing, one of the parts of their tradition that one of the things that they do traditionally is they do a lot of weavings, and what the despacho is in a very real sense is it's a weaving 
of all the energetic spirit beings with the human that's there and their needs and wants and desires and you know this intention and they're creating this thing this beautiful prayer bundle to put out into the world to inform the world because intention informs the world energy follows intention in the Andean tradition. So you put out this intention backed by all these spirit beings and it's in the world. It's that information's out there and the world's going to respond in kind. There's going to be this I need this reciprocity that happens. But you have to develop that awareness, I think, before you start to really value the tradition. So you've already speak, spoken kind of a, a lot in, in, in different aspects of, of, of the, the, the Karot traditions, but if someone was to come to you and, and just kind of ask for a brief overview or, or, or who are the Karos, um, what would you say, what would you say is, uh, I mean, kind of where they're coming from? I mean, obviously the, the Andes, but... Uh, Maybe if you're able to speak a, a bit about, you know, again, to, to what degree you know, but, but their history, who they are, um, how they view the world, um, and, and, and what, are, what are maybe some of their main tenets? I mean, how, how they view healing, how they view things like initiation, uh, how they set up societies, like what are the roles that they're playing and. And, and also maybe for you, like why and, and how you, you found such a connection with them, because you also tried it, you know, it seems like a lot of different things and you walked a lot of different paths, but it, it really seems like this is the tradition that's, that's really spoken to you and, and, and kind of this, this lineage that you really seem to be connected to and, and, and went quite deeply in and, and now in a way are kind of carrying the torch of that. So what was it about that system that, that you found to be so beautiful for, for yourself? Good question. Um, um, first of all, I will say I've been studying this tradition for 20 years and I feel like I just have a, you know, a drop in the bucket, but, um, but I um, will tell you, you know, what I know. Um, but let me start from the more personal. Um, I didn't really seek out the Carol. I, they, it kept coming to me. I was interested in shamanism, and by a strange set of circumstances, I ended up at this talk by Alberto. And I'm like, okay, well, that seems like a good way to go. And when I went to Peru with him, one of the, you know, a few years into my training, and, after, and um, I was assisting, I think, still with him. I was, I was an assistant. There, you know, there was sort of this hierarchy of teaching for, with him. So the first you, you come in as an assistant, you volunteer, you just kind of help keep everything going. And eventually, you can work into being a lead teacher, at least when he did it in person a long time ago. Now it's all online. So he doesn't need all that kind of structure. But back then he did. And I was, I was an assistant, and I went to Peru, and um, I decided to, to purchase a, a mastana, a mesa cloth, from um, one of the, the Pacos. And he's a Paco that's very well-known and... Um, um, he, he sold me one, and then I said, could you give it a blessing, please? And he said something in Quechua, blah, 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 and I'm like, and I looked around and I said, what did he say? And what he said was, his name was Don Humberto, and he said, um, you are going to be a teacher of this tradition. He said, it's not going to happen right away, it's going to take a little while. He goes, but you're going to be a teacher of this tradition. 
And I went, wow, <laughs> okay. I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting have a good life, you know, like blessings on your way. And I went, isn't that interesting? Okay. And so then I went back to um, teaching with Alberto and I got, you know, I worked my way up through his, his, his system and became a lead teacher. And then I started my own school and, you know, I taught what I knew. And then again, Joan, I, I took Joan's online class and I was like, um, yeah, I, I just want to, you know, go deeper with this. And she's, she's like, come learn the tradition. I want you to, you know, would, would you be willing to go deeper on this? I'm like, uh, oh, okay. You know, like it keeps pulling me in, in, in ways that I didn't envision in a, in a bigger way than I envisioned. And like, I keep, I keep saying yes, because I know you have to, I know that's the right answer. Um, and so, and interestingly, with Joan, when she gave me the initiations, we do these online, um, she gave me um, the initiation into the lineages, and she said, stay on Zoom afterwards. And I go, okay. So I stayed on Zoom afterwards, and she goes, the weirdest thing happened. She goes, I rarely see Don Benito, which is, which is um, Juan Nunez de Prado's primary teacher, the person, excuse me, that taught him all this stuff. He said... Um, she goes, I, I rarely seen Don, um, Don Benito has died. He, many, he's, he's been dead for, since the 80s, I think. She goes, I, I rarely see him in any kind of vision. She goes, but he came through when I was giving you the lineage um, um, initiation carpi. And I went, wow, you know, that's fascinating. So there's this sense that I keep having this, I keep being drawn in. Um, and I'm, and there's a part of me that's always been, I'm not Caro. Who am I to represent their their tradition? But on the other hand, apparently I am somebody to represent their tradition. And to come back to your, to a little bit more into the me part of it, I was raised in Alaska, which has those same huge tall mountains all around it, Apus. And recently I was. Um, I was given a bear, a black bear skin that came from Alaska, and um, it was as a gift. Someone just said, you're a shaman, you should have this. It came from Alaska, and I'm like, what am I going to do with a bear skin from Alaska? And suddenly I had this whole download from all the apus in Alaska, like, remember all the apus who've been holding you all this time, all the mountains, apus are mountains, and I went, Oh, and I just had this sense of whatever the division between me and the tradition was dissolved. You know, I was like, well, I'm this white girl from, you know, California, and there's the Andes. And then I just went, something just happened, and I went like, oh, yeah, I teach this. I'm part, I, you know, I'm, who is this person that thinks she's in the way, right? Who is, who is this person? And I need to get rid of her. Um, so that's my kind of sense. Um, I, you know, it, it just calls me. And, and then the other way that it calls me is the whole psychedelic physics thing. In, in my youth, I saw that the universe was created out of these energetic patterns that were intelligent, which told me that there was a matrix of intelligence that we were all a part of. I couldn't figure out how to study it. I found it in, in physics, like, oh, yeah, there it is. They're saying there's an intelligence that's right there that's in the air that's created. You can't see in everyday life. So the Andean tra tradition of saying everything is connected, we come from this conscious living calcite pacha, um, 
we're, using, we're learning how to engage it, how to use it, has been um, just right in, in, in parallel with what I, I already have been curious about from the beginning. And who knows you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, so that, that's sort of my, my, how I come to it. Um, the Andean tradition is, it's more than the carol. Um, back before the 1500, in the 1500s, the Spaniards came and they conquered the, the Inca. And before that, the Inca empire was, was stretched from Peru all the way down to Chile. There, was all, there were all kinds of different tribes that gathered together under this one umbrella called the Inca Empire. And part of their tradition um, was to incorporate all the different gods and all the different teachings and all the different tribes in, in one, under one umbrella called the Inca. And implicit in there was a, um, an acceptance of all the different tribes and not trying to convert anybody to anybody else's perspective. And there's a lot of different things you can say about them. Um, um, one of the things Juan says is they came to the world to bring us Munai, to bring us love. The Westerners, you know, the European people came to bring us thought, yachai. Um, and, um, they, you know, the, 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 the North Americans are more like yankai, the, the doers, that get things done, make things, you know, create things. Um, and all three of those powers are important for the for the development of the human the human collective the human consciousness the human being that we're go that's going forward. There's a story about all that. Um, but in any event, the the Inca Empire um, at its base has that anybody all these different tribes can be part of it. And we incorporate all these different teachings, and it's not either or. And when you get to the high levels of the Andean traditions, they're saying this. They're saying, can you hold multiple truths at the same time? Can you hold this place of love for other people at the same, you know, for people that bother you, people you don't like? Can you still love them? Can they still be your brother? Um, all these things are the things that, that pull me in to the tradition um, and it, it is, you know, I took that first class with Alberto and he was talking about shamanism and quantum mechanics. And I, it's still, it's still at the root. I would say shamanism, quantum mechanics, and consciousness. You know, these are the, these are the, these are the things I've always been interested in. And it's part of the Andean tradition. It's just implied. They, they are like the applied neuroscientists and the applied uh, physicists of the, of, you know, of the indigenous traditions in my, in my position. This idea, I think, is really important, which is this idea of, of holding multiple truths to be true at, at the same time. And we also seem to be living in a world that's, that, that seems to be quite divided. I mean, all over the world, it, it, it seems to be moving in that direction. And it, it seems like one of those things is that we're not able to do that. We're not able to hold multiple truths to be true at the same time. Uh, I mean, that's kind of the nature of division, is it's, it's black and white. I'm right and you're wrong. I'm good and you're bad. Uh, but to be able to see things from another point of view, even whether we agree with it or not, but to see the validity of, of someone else's point of view, to see the, the validity of the other side of the same coin, to, to, to be able to say that 
that maybe what I think is true and also what someone else thinks is true and, and where is the meeting behind that and and I think that also goes back to this idea of love you know that's very much this idea of love is this non-separation there's a union there's a unifying there's there's a seeing myself in someone else uh, being able to, 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 to hold them w within my my energetic field um, is that something that you found to be, because you've said that twice, and so I find that really interesting, this idea of, of holding uh, truths at the same time. Is, is that something you found with the Cairo, that, that idea? Absolutely. And to, just to come back to your earlier question, this is you know, where I would start with somebody is you are invited to be a part of this tradition, right? And this is, they are very much about sharing their tradition, about saying, you know, the, one of the, one of the um, tenets of their tradition is the guy that's the fastest up the top of the mountain turns back and helps the slowest up because they're very communal, because it's about you have to love each other or you're not going to survive. You have to oversee each other's differences or you're not going to survive. And it's actually a medicine of the times right now because we are all so divided. And it is very much about being able to hold multiple truths at the same time. They have a way of breaking down things um, into, into kind of energetic structures, and they will say, like, Two things that are the same are called mesintin. You know, like two women are mesintin, two men are mesintin. But a man and a woman are, um, they're, they're, it wouldn't say they're opposite, they would say they're complements of each other. And those are yanantin. And so part of the, the tradition is learning how to harmonize mesintin things. Like, so the harmonization in mesintin relationships are you have to deal with the competition. I'm this and you're that and who's better? And that creates hucha in that place of trying to, you know, it, it downgrades your sami to be stuck in those sort of patterns. But the yanantan piece is the bigger learning piece. How can I live in harmony with a complement? Whether the complement is another gender, another race, another political perspective, another belief system, any of these things, another religion, part of their tradition is not to say, you have to convert to me. We have to be misintin. It says, you be you, I'll be me, and let's find this way of bridging it and harmonizing so that we can complement each other and bring a better thing into the world by the fact that you have that and I have this. And so it just part of their tradition is this this is sort of tools that we don't have in our culture of learning to embrace the differences and, and learning to hone harmony. It's called a hapu between yanantan things, between different things, different beliefs, different people, different races, all these things. And of course, munai, love, is that thing that enables all that. I can see who you are. I don't necessarily like you. I don't necessarily agree you, but I love you. You're a fellow human being. You're my brother. <laughs> You're my sister. Hmm. You also mentioned this idea a couple times, uh, which, which I think is also really important. Um, and, and I think you used the word choice, uh, you know, which is similar to this idea of volition. Uh, it was kind of in this reference of not being a victim. And part of being a victim is also this idea that, that we don't have a choice. Like, 
someone or something or you know something outside myself is dictating my life and I have no power I have no choice uh, you know it's interesting because it also has to do with this idea of free will which is also something that's that's very much debated as well like whether we have free will but uh, kind of from from my understanding of, of these indigenous cultures they very much speak about this idea of free will you know in fact like the idea of the human that the highest honor that a human can do is to be a creator that's that's to be in the image of god and and god has free will it, it has volition it, it's literally the creator it decided to create um, but it's interesting because it also this idea of choice of volition also has to do you know with these kind of i think very shamanic or or, or healing ideas about bringing order, bringing direction, bringing alignment, uh, you know, which also is like etymologically related to ideas of wholeness, of healing. You know, all of these things are somehow interrelated. So, yeah, it, it just for me, that's, that's always such an important thing. And I, I'm wondering if you can maybe speak a bit more, because you also mentioned that a couple of times, that, that from your, your time with the Cerdo, they, they really spoke or emphasized about this idea of choice, that, that, that we have choice. And, and, you know, even that shift, as we were talking about, that shift of perception, that shift of cosmovision, it can be so healing, you know. I mean, even as, like I was just saying, I mean, that, that's literally etymologically choice is, you know, uh, somehow um, related to the idea of healing. I mean, it's, it's, it's a similar root. Yeah, there's a concept in the Andean tradition called karpai, which means power or personal power. And part of your 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 evolution at those seven steps of the conscious patanyan is building your personal power. And your personal power comes from being able to take ownership of what you do, what you do and don't do, of being able to hold that space, be responsible. Um, so it is very much a part of the tradition that there is free will, that you are an individual. Um, if you don't express who you are, who will? Um, you're part, this, is, this is the part of creation that came through as Christina. That's the part that came through as Jason. You have to do what you do. I have to do what I do. Um, and we have to find that and be that instead of you know, all the things that we're supposed to do. So... Um, Victimhood keeps us stuck in that place of um, um, not having any power, not having any personal power. And you cannot be an effective Paco if you're stuck in victimhood. Victimhood is a contractive kind of um, um, energetic stance. It's everything's coming at me, I have to go into fear. It's not being able to stand up and puff yourself up and say, fill your bubble with Sami and go, I've got this. Not only have I got this, I can help you get this. And, and, and there are levels of reach that, that the Paco has. And this is part of the, the steps up the conscious Patanyan to being able to hold, hold bigger and bigger levels of reach. At, at the smallest level, you're just working on yourself. Then you're working on your Ayu, your tribe, your town, your city. Your, you, know, you become more and more able until you have global reach. And you can't have global reach as a victim. You have to be able to work and make choice and learn from the consequences. And all of this creates personal power. Whereas if you stay in victim and everybody's doing it to you, you never learn those lessons. You never, you never learn from consequence. 
um, you end up sort of in, in, end up in these enabling kind of relationships where you need a rescuer if you're a victim and you need a perpetrator and you're working through these these sort of cycles, these archetypal cycles from all three of those things um, instead of coming up through the middle and going, I've got this, this is, this is mine to navigate. I'm gonna have problems, I'm gonna have high moments, I'm gonna navigate all of those, I'm gonna learn from my mistakes. You know, instead of, so something can happen to somebody, absolutely. You know, in trauma, something happens to people. But there's a place where you move on. Um, you can stay in victimhood, or and you can stay in that suffering. Or you can move into a place of, what can I learn from that thing that happened? What, what did I develop? What strengths did I develop in myself to... Um, to endure, to not have that happen again, to be a stronger person, to take my medicine out in the world. What medicine did I develop by having gone through that circumstance or those circumstances? And so you shift out of victim into expression of your Inca seed, into that was just a teaching moment so that I could pull through from my Inca seed that part of myself that needed to be developed so I could fully express who I am, so I have more and more and more carpi. You mentioned in the beginning, I, I, I don't know if you got around to it, but you, you, you said there was a story you were going to get back to about how the, Apo, how the Apus helped the, the, the Pacos in their work. Um, is that something you could, you could share? Yes, there's a story of when the conquistadors came, the Spaniards came, they um, wanted to wipe out all the, all the people that were there, especially the spiritual people, the traditional, you know, the, the priests, because, you know, one of the first tenets of changing a cultural paradigm is to take out the religion. And um, so they, they had, you know, killed off a lot of the people at the, at, you know, at the more accessible levels like Cusco, which is only 14,000 feet, and they started going up into the mountains to, um, to go, to, to bring, you know, to take down the Carol, to kill them off. And the Carol were warned by the Apus that this was going to happen. And the Apus said, the mountains said, because they speak to the mountains, the mountains are wise beings. The mountains said, build up columns of rock along your along the path to to Keros, to the to the villages of Keros. build that up now because they're coming and so they're like okay so they built these big columns of rocks and as the conquistadors started coming up the mountain there was an earthquake and all those rocks went down and they spilled down and they pummeled all the Spaniards and killed them. And the last few that, are, that were alive flew into a lake and drowned. And so there's this real sense that they're in cahoots with the, um, with the Apos, that the Apos inform them, they protect them, they help them with their work, they help them survive, they give them wisdom. That was the story as well. Would you say that's one of the main kind of objectives about that practice is is really beginning to to refine one's sensitivities to to open our perception to these forces of nature like the mountains, like the water, like the wind, 
uh, like the earth, to really be able to learn from that. Um, because this also isn't such a foreign concept. I mean, even in the country that, that you're coming from, that, that I'm from, the U.S., I mean, our, our founding fathers, when, when you, you read them, they would often say that the highest form of knowledge uh, didn't come from a book. It doesn't come from man. Uh, it doesn't come from the sciences. They would say it comes from nature. And, you know, I, I think for so many people, we've really moved away from that. Like, we view the epitome of knowledge as coming from, from man, from humans, from, from books, from science. And yet, you know, even for the Greeks, like, they, they had two words for knowledge. And the highest form of knowledge was gnosis. And it wasn't something that was learned in a book. It was something that was experiential, that, that, that you know, they would actually say came from spirit. I mean, even in our language, that's... We use these words like inspired. It means to be filled with spirit, and that's the highest form of knowledge. I mean, true art is when you're inspired, and it's usually that inspiration isn't coming from, from the realm of humans. It's coming from the dream space. I mean, even very famous scientists like Einstein is kind of infamously known for kind of his revelations came through this dream space or this daydream space. And, you know, it's a very common thing. So uh, do you think that's that's one of the, the real kind of beauties or powers of the, the Karo teaching is the kind of these techniques, these tools to really be able to to refine ourselves, to become kind of in a way more of a more of a channel, more of an antenna, more of a just an open human being to, to be able to receive more from all of these gifts that, that are around us. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. Absolutely. We are, what we're trying to do in the tradition is be Ranti, same as Mesintan with the creative force so that we are its hands. We are an extension of it instead of separate from it. There are lots of different ways that you break down, um, um, you know, religions and traditions. And some, you know, you're you're subservient to the sky god, but in this sense, you're you are you have a bit of it in you. You are it. You're part of creation. You are one of the hands and legs of creation. And so, um, yes, this is this. It's becoming aware enough of of the way that you limit yourself and your humanity to be able to embrace your divinity. And the, the way that you said it in terms of experience and experiences, and, and, and um, it, it's, it's a really important point because experience has way more bandwidth than a thought, than intellectualism. Experience has the mix of your emotions and your aha and your it, it landed Whereas thought just has this, this this much smaller bandwidth of of information, and so when we experience something, it will change us. You can read things, and they can change you. You can hear thoughts, and they can change you. But when you have an experience, your whole being is involved in that. You're having a visceral experience, and so you shift. You create a truth from that. You can create truths by things that you read in a book, but they're they're tentatable. They're they, you can you can uncreate. You know, I, I read another book, and maybe this is true. But when you have an experience of something, when you have Pachamama show up, and you can feel her, and she talks to you, and you have this sort of come to Jesus moment with her, that's real to you. That creates a new truth. 
And all the different parts of nature are spirit beings that you can have these experiences with. The wind is a being. So is the sun, so is the moon, so are the trees, they're all beings. And when you can open up to that bandwidth of experiencing relationship with them, then you are getting knowledge from a different place. Absolutely. It's not just kind of repeating what other humans have said. What other humans have said is great and it can take us to another level or it can it can titillate us and make us open. But to to get to that next level of engagement, of living as a hand of, of creation, you have to be in connection with it. And it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing because if you, if you stay in the intellect, you're more egoically driven. And when you can go past the intellect into that place of experience and into that place of connection to the spiritual realm, you're part of the whole unfolding of things. Now, there's a, a tricky place in there when the ego decides that it has done that, when it hasn't. Um, and it's like, yeah, 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 I, you know, I do all these things, and I know all these things, and I have all these relationships, and it's, you know, this is who I am, and I'm great because I do this. Um, it's different than just being in that vibration of being in the ocean, you know, be, feeling the water, feeling the waves, feeling the currents, knowing that you're bobbing with that water and you're, you know, you're, you're getting tossed by those currents and you're in it, you're part of it. And then knowing you have some facility within that, not a, not a whole lot, but a certain amount. It's different than being on the shore going, yes, I understand waves, waves are nice. There's some wind that comes and, you know, takes the wave and makes it do all these things. Getting in the water is a whole different thing. And that's, I think, that, that what this tradition is all about, is getting aware, becoming aware enough of who you're not, how you've discreated yourself in some sense, so you can really step into the water and go, I'm part of creation. And, and as part of creation, what do I want to do? How do I want to bring through whatever humanity needs? Because right now, humanity's in a little bit of a crunch here, I think. It's, it's kind of in a lot of chaos. Um, so in, in some sense, this tradition is, is beautiful. I think there are lots of traditions that are, but this is the one that I'm in. And um, that, that knowing that comes from experience is essential to shamanic traditions and essential to this one in particular and developing your perception. You know, one of the first things we teach is, can you feel the energy? Because in our mind, we're like, yes, that's nice. There's energy. Yes, there's tree beings. Yes, that's nice. There are, there's the wind. You know, our intellect is going to reduce it all to words and concepts. And what we do in the tradition is we open up the bandwidth to an experiential realm. And so I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that through. In a lot of traditions, kind of as you were saying, that there is a lot of a lot of things that are passed down, a lot of intellect, and we read books and uh, we go to lectures or we we listen to the Dalai Lama or, or the Pope. And one of the things that's really interesting about a lot of these traditions, these these kind of more, again, for lack of a better word, shamanic traditions, is kind of as you said in the beginning. You, you said the the pacos or the caros, they're they're not big talkers. And it's it's something that's very interesting, and I think for a lot of Westerners, very difficult to kind of bridge those worlds. I mean, it was something I, I noticed a lot 
when I was working with the Shipibo in the jungle, as a lot of foreigners would come down and they, they wanted to have these kind of intellectual talks with, with the Shipibo, and that's not them. Um, and, and I think, you know, often people look at that as somehow being maybe like less evolved or maybe unscientific in a way because there's not these systems in place. And yet, often the answers to those things in a way are more refined because as you said, they're, they're not coming from an intellectual place. They're not coming from a place of rote or repetition or we're taking what someone says, but it's very much putting you in an experience. And uh, much like as you said, and, and, and I think it's something very beautiful and very powerful that, that few people really have a chance to experience, uh, you know, kind of as you were saying of, of sitting in those ceremonies where they just kept doing these same things and making these offerings. And, but often there, there's something that begins to drop away. And as you said, a, a different level of perception opens or a different understanding that's moving beyond the mind, but something that becomes very visceral, very, very heartfelt. And, and, and there's very much a shift of of our whole being, of, of how we look at the world, of what we consider to be real or not real or true or not true. And, and it's something that's very rare that we experience. And in that way, you know, and, and it's a word that I, I think is being more used, but, but still probably not widely accepted, which is uh, science, which is that actually these, these traditions are very scientific, but the science behind it is it's a different science. It's a science of the experience of instead of being told like this is this, it's here's this ceremony or here's this cup of medicine or, uh, you know, go up into the mountains for, for a number of days and, and be with the wind, be with the water and come back. And what did you find? Um, and, and there's something very powerful about that. It is very scientific. You know, it's almost like an, a lost science of the, these systems are actually very complex and very deep, uh, but just maybe not in a way that, that most of our minds is, is able to grasp at first. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I, what that made me think of is it's empirical. You know, it's, it's truth that you develop through experience. And what science likes to say is you have to repeat an experiment over and over again, and if you come out with the same results, then we can say it's, then we can form a theory and we can say this is true. Um, and that, it's not that way in the shamanic traditions. Um, there's a lot of subjectivity. There's a lot of your experience and what your truth is. That said, the other side of the traditions is there's a tradition. When, this is a thing that I've thought about um, in terms of science versus the, the, you know, the traditional kinds of things. In science, the way we keep things pure is through peer review. Your peers challenge your perspective. If you can you know, defend your perspective, if you can have enough experiments to defend it, if, you can, you know, if, it, if it survives all the peer, um, the, the, you know, like the barrage of I'm going to take your da you down from your peers and that, those facts still rise, then we go, okay, we're going to say that's probably true. So this is the way that a lot of, you know, this is the beauty of science is that it's not just correlative. You know, you can't just say, well, this happened and this happened, so they must be related. You have to show that 
they're related and you have to show that they're related repeatedly. And then we go, okay, that's a fact. And this is going to be part of our tenets. And we're going to pass this down as part of the tradition in, in the, in the, you know, in the shamanic traditions, we have lineages that teach practices for people to have experiences in and whatever doesn't work gets weeded out also sort of like peer review like if that's that's a, a bogus theory that's not going to happen so the the parts of the tradition that work the best keep getting passed down and passed down and passed down so you hone these traditions into having this sort of set of truth and tenets that is more experiential and is based on subjectivity but within a container of this is the um this is the way that we do things and these are you know these are this is the this is how we foster this growth and this understanding by by this you know these these tried and true methods and practices hmm. yeah beautiful so you you're now the the director the founder of of something called the Austin Shamanic Center can you can you speak a bit more about that, about the, the work that you do, that the center does, and, and what was the impetus behind that, and, and kind of uh, what's, what's happening there? Yeah, um, it's, um, it's, it's just what I created. Um, I left Alberto in 2013, and I did, it was time to go. I'd been there for 10 years. I had taught. Um, there wasn't any place else to go. He was making some big changes in, in, the, um, in his teaching and his, his staff. And it was just time for me to go and be on my own. And I was living in California at the time, in Southern California, San Diego area. Not a great place to try and introduce shamanic practices. There's a lot of, um, or at least at that time, there were a lot of fundamentalist Christians there who would, you know, really push against anything that they that was called shamanic, and and file it in demonic. And so I had a lot of trouble trying to to. I had a yoga studio at the time, and I had a lot of trouble trying to integrate that in. Yoga was hard enough at that time. So I was looking for a place where there was a more a community that was more open to um, these traditions. And I had a couple students in one of my last classes with Alberto. From, from Austin, and they said, you should come to Austin and check it out. It's a very spiritual but very intelligent community. And I said, okay, I'll check it out. I came, I liked it. I said, okay, this is where I'm going to move. I'm going to start my own school. It, it was sort of brave on my part to do all that without knowing more than a couple people. But I did, and um, I started a school, and I called it Austin Shamanic Center. Um, I didn't really know what to call it, and I, I went to this um, marketing company I'm like this is what I do how do, you know what should I call this and they're like let's call it Austin Shamanic Center I'm like all right um you know it's because it's 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 easy to find it's easy to to get into but the the the, the place where I run into trouble is people want journeys and they want you know sweats and they want all kinds of things that are North American um shaman you know considered shamanic and and I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'm doing the Andean stuff. So I taught sort of my own version of neuroscience, um, physics, and and Alberto's version of the, the tradition. And then I met Joan, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> when I met Joan, I met her before COVID. And I had this, I fell into the fire in 2019. 
and it was just after it was after I had started working with her, and there's just this transition happened in the space that I was working out of over COVID was taken away. Joan said, get online, start doing this. And so there was a big shift into teaching the Annie, because I couldn't teach the, the things I was teaching in person online very well. They were experiential kind of sit in circles and do things. And so, um, but Joan's, the way that Joan was teaching the Andean tradition was very, very easily, you know, adaptable to online teaching. And um, she just scooped me up and said, you got this kid, you know, go ahead and do it. And um, I, you know, I, she introduced me to Juan and Yvonne because it was during COVID. They were available on Zoom. So we spent long hours talking to them. And I got to run all the things I knew about um, what I had learned from Alberta. And I go, well, how do you see this? Well, how do you see this? Well, how do you see this? And was able to sort of piece together what Alberto had put together and how he had put together and why he had put it together. And then what the, you know, what the original teachings were, kind of, you know, we pulled those out and then started teaching online. And so, and then I've had a healing practice all this time. You know, I've always been a healer. So um, I, I updated the way I heal so that I use the traditional um, energy tuning practices and um, the, and the, you know, the, the other thing that Alberto introduced into the system were chakras. In the Andean tradition, they don't have chakras. They have nyawis, and nyawis are eyes, and they're very different. They don't spin. They're not wheels. Excuse me. Chakras come out of the Indian, the, you know, the the, the um, Vedic traditions from India, and um, the the Pacos don't have these spinning wheels, but they have these perceptive lenses. So part of the tradition is to clear these eyes so that you can perceive with all these different capacities. Each eye has different kinds of capacities. So um, I started to incorporate that into my healing work. Um, so at this point, I do like three days of healing work, and then I teach often on weekends. I'm currently writing a book on freeze and how to heal using... Um, well, the premise really is that healing is a spiritual endeavor, and you can't just heal the mind. You can't just heal the brain. You have to have a, you know, it's a, it's a spiritual experience. And to thaw from freeze, you're going to have to step into the spiritual realm. So I'm writing that book at also, and that's sort of where I am. Beautiful. And and if people are interested in, in learning more about that or, or contacting you, is, is there a good way for them to do that? Yeah, the best way is through my website, which is info at austinshamaniccenter.com. Um, and just send us an email or go, you know, read through and see what, what interests you. I have a whole, a whole section called services. I have workshops, I have healing, I have pr private consultations, I have all kinds of things that I offer. Um, and you can just kind of pick from there. You can send me an email and say, hey, I'm here. Um, I don't have a lot of spare time to chat with people. I get a lot of people like, hey, I just want to meet you, I want to chat, let's go have coffee. I'm like, I have almost all my time spoken for. Um, it's not like I'm too busy for you, it's just I already committed myself very um, deeply into all the things that I am doing. But happy to hear from people, happy to. Yeah. Well, wonderful, Christina. Well, we're, we're coming up on two and a half hours. Um, but uh, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing and, and just sharing your background and your perspective and, and your life's work and just everything you've done. And um, 
you know, I, I find these traditions very fascinating, and I, I think the audience really does. And, and if they haven't heard of these traditions, we'll find them very uh, fascinating. So, again, thank you so much for your time. It, it was a really beautiful interview and really beautiful just uh, hearing from you and connecting with you a little bit. And, and I think the audience is really going to get a lot out of this episode. And, um, and yeah, is, is there anything we, we touched on that, uh, or that we didn't touch on that you'd like to say before we, we bring this to a close? Um, I'm feeling complete at this point, but thank you, Jason, very, very much for, for doing the interview, for reaching out, for following through on Joan's um, suggestion. Um, it's an honor to talk with you. I know you talk with all kinds of amazing people, and I feel lucky to be among them. So thank you very much for the interview. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, and, and thank you very much again for coming on. And, and I really wish you the best uh, in your continued journey. I, I think it's beautiful what you're doing, kind of bringing this work out into the public. And it's, uh, I think, really medicine of our times. As you said, uh, I think there's very much a reason why these these traditions are moving out into the world and it's because they're very much needed. Uh, people need them and, and also to keep them alive. And, and I think it's beautiful kind of this, this act of, of bridge building that you're doing. And it's also very much an indigenous prophecy of, of the times we're living in, which is these, these people who are able to, to build bridges and to share and to bring medicines from different parts of the world together. So, so thank you for doing that. And thank you for your time and sharing. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Christina. Uh, for me, it was really a pleasure to sit down with her, to get to know her a little bit better, to have her share in her story. And I really hope you all uh, gain some insight and knowledge from her. Uh, as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really uh, amazing way of doing that, of being able to give back. So if you feel like you're gaining something from this podcast, uh, that's a, a super helpful way. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for, and also all of those tiers give uh, different things back. So things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Uh, to all of the patrons, to all the people supporting that way, as always, thank you very much for your support. And if you're able to do that, thank you very much in advance. Um, if you're not able to do that, always uh, just helping with some of the small things that really help to drive the algorithms is a really big help. So if you're viewing this on YouTube or Rumble, uh, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving any questions or comments in the comments section. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leaving a starred rating and a short review is also a really big help. Um, my next guest, I have a guy, uh, Jonathan Ross, I think coming on the next episode. He's done some really interesting work on this idea of enlightenment and uh, speaking with some really interesting people uh, about what that means. He's also written a, a new book uh, about MDMA therapy. Uh, I think he's also one of the, uh, the kind of pioneers in that field, so that should be a really interesting conversation. Uh, I'm also trying to get on um, a Russian Orthodox priest to talk about Christianity and um, kind of just some of the, the more maybe pagan influences of that as well. Uh, I'm really hoping that works out. Um, 
I have a number of guests. I, I can't think of them all. There's, um, there's a good friend of mine, uh, Jeanette, who I'm hoping to bring on to speak about kind of the crossover between Buddhism and plant medicine. So that should be a really interesting conversation. Uh, and a few other guests lined up as well, but I'm not uh, remembering off the top of my head. But as always, I hope to continue to bring on some really fascinating people. Uh, I hope this finds you all well. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, and I will see you all on the next episode.